Our next presenter, uh, Lynn Kiesling, is professor of economics at Purdue University. She does all kinds of exciting pioneering work and regulatory policy and new technologies. And she's going to share some of that with you now. Yep. Cool. Thanks, Tom. Am I on? Um, OK. Are we testing that? Good. That works. Hi. Um, good morning. And uh, thank you to uh, Tom and Cato for inviting me. Uh, I'm really happy to be here. And um, over the, today and tomorrow, I have the great fortune of sharing with you ideas about three of my favorite topics and three of the topics that I think are some of the most important in economics, including this one, spontaneous order, which I think is, is a foundational uh, concept. And it comes right out of the, if we're doing the economics family tree, it comes right out of the Smith-Hayek branch of the family tree. And, uh, and so I want to delve into that a little bit today. Um, I've never been fond of the phrase spontaneous order because it kind of generates this impression that, you know, order happens like Athena sprouting out of the head of Zeus. Just boom, there it is. And uh, I think that can create some misconceptions. And, you know, as we could see from the Q&A with Jeff, part of, I think, what we're all interested in doing is communicating our messages more effectively to people who don't already agree with us. Um, so I tend to think in terms of emergence and the idea of emergent order that, that rather than having a top-down imposition of some particular type of outcome, that you can have outcomes that emerge uh, through the interactions of individuals within a particular institutional framework. And, and that's the idea that, that I want to start with today. And in particular, we see emergence in a lot of different kinds of social systems, from uh, ants to humans engaging in exchange, and all sorts of other kinds of, of social systems. But we see some patterns emerge. And so when I, when I say patterns, patterns and order are, are closely related to me. Um, and that these are patterns that yield outcomes that are beneficial to the participants. So clearly, when we're talking about humans, mutually beneficial exchange is a, is a repeated pattern of, um, of activity. And it didn't, it, it's not like you know back millennia ago um, in prehistory, somebody stood up and said, OK, right, so we're going to do this market thing. And you're going to do this, and you're going to do this. That's not how it happened at all, right? It, it, it's, Mark, um, trade and exchange emerge as a social relationship within particularly um, particular constructs. So, so trade and exchange is, of course, a, a socially embedded social activity for mutually beneficial gain. And it happens without central coordination. And we have a few examples that we use of this. Um, the famous one for a lot of us who have read Leonard Reed's I Pencil. Uh, is, of course, the pencil. You know, how is it that people manufacture pencils? No one person knows how to manufacture a pencil. And yet, pencils are you know, readily available on the market at a reasonable price. How does that happen? It happens without central coordination. Um, another example that we see a lot, there's a, um, a recent book that I would recommend. And actually, at the end of my slides, I have a, a page, a list of um, references. 
Um, Pietro Nivola uh, has a book called Travels of a T-Shirt. Or if you're a fan of NPR's show Planet Money, you might have heard their uh, T-shirt their episodes where they basically did the same thing. It was, you know, how do you make a T-shirt? And you go from growing the cotton to spinning the yarn to sewing the T-shirts to distributing them. And it's, it's the same story over and over again. Um, Adam Smith first told the story in Wealth of Nations, uh, book one, chapter one, about the, woolen, the laborer's woolen coat and you know, all of the marvel of all of the different steps that different strangers are doing to participate together in the making of the laborer's woolen coat. Um, the, uh, um, yeah, so, so we have several examples of this that we, that we see over and over. The idea that that kind of beneficial activity emerges without central coordination. And so that's the phenomenon that, that puzzles some, as, you know, how does this happen? How can this be a good thing? Couldn't we do better if we, like, organized stuff? Um, <laughs> and I'm a, I'm a perennial organizer, so my husband always laughs when he's like, you stu study all this emergent order stuff, but you're the one that likes to, like, make things do, do, do. Like, yeah, I am large. I contain multitudes, whatever. Um, so let's talk a little bit about this phenomenon of order. What, is, what exactly do we mean by order? Um, and I, I want to think about this concept of emergent order in particular. I mean, I've, I've referred to order before as the idea of a pattern. And um, so let's start with that. Uh, I'm going to use very Smithy, Adam Smithian terms to refer to this. And uh, in in most of his work, Smith was very focused on the idea of um, you know, it, an institutional framework that enables people in society to live together peaceably and, and responsibly in civil society. Um, and uh, for him, that idea meant a state of harmony, right? Not, human, not uniformity, but harmony, that each of us individually has different life projects that we want to pursue. Different objectives, different preferences, is the way an economist would say it. Um, and uh, another good Smith phrase, he says, we all have different principles of motion, right? Each of us individually is, is doing different things. And yet, part of what we would like to see out of, and here I'm, I'm going to channel Jeff's consequentialist framing, um, what we would like to see in social systems is this um, idea of harmonious interaction, that we are all as able as possible to pursue our individual projects in a way that's fulfilling to us and, and enhances our flourishing, um, and that we get the benefits of living together in, in, in civil society because we are, after all, social creatures. Um, another way that you can think about uh, order is the idea of some regularity or some predictability, that there is a pattern of, of things that enables you to form expectations. And that, that ability to form expectations is really important. So notice the way I'm talking about this. I'm not talking about order as in we're going to have a particular outcome, and this is what's going to happen, and it's going to happen at this time, in this place. No. This concept of order is more about regularity of process. Uh, and um, 
And again, I think that's very consistent with the kind of Smith-Hayek family tree of this idea. Um, in in the, the kind of complexity science branch of, of the emergent order family tree, there's some emphasis on the idea that you have this you know, appearance of chaos, where he's just like, oh, all this crazy stuff is going on, and then we're going to have some order emerge out of it. Um, and the reason I mention that is because it, it allows me to use Thomas Hobbes as a foil, right? Because you know, if you think about Hobbes's Leviathan, the idea is that the state of nature is when life is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And um, you know, the Leviathan comes in as the external third party and imposes order. The emergent order concept is instead saying, okay, if we have this situation where life is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, maybe there are other ways that order can emerge out of, out of the, the situation. And historically, I would say that um, both forces are in play and often interact with each other. Um, yeah. Uh, but one thing, and, and this is why I like, I like grounding this in, in Adam Smith, is because the emergence of social order is really, um, it's important, I think, for us to ground it in the idea that humans are inherently self-interested individuals. And by self-interested, I'm again using the Smithian concept of self-interest, not selfish in the kind of narrow, calculating, homo economicus stereotype. You know, self-interest is a broader and more encompassing concept where you know, your self-interest means you prioritize your own well-being, especially your material well-being, right? The food, clothing, and shelter so that you can survive. This is kind of the evolutionary impetus. Um, but also that you uh, are concerned about the well-being of your family, your friends, your neighbors. And uh, you know, Smith has this concept of social distance with sort of these radiating circles of, um, of, of uh, interest and where your self-interest encompasses your interest in the well-being of those closest to you and that that declines as you go out those radiating circles. So emergent order is, is something that, that comes out of you know, the, this apparent idea of chaos, but part of what drives emergent order is the self-interest of individuals. And if you can harness those, the self-interest of all of us in our different life projects, our different perspectives, our different preferences, if we can harness that self-interest in a way that can be mutually beneficial, then we can have a, you know, order emerge that is, helps us achieve what we want to achieve, is consistent with economic growth, you know, all, all of the, um, all the stuff that, that Professor McCloskey is going to tell us about later. Um, another important concept in emergent order is the idea of um, order without commands from a central source i.e. emergent order is a decentralized or distributed concept. Um, uh, when we think about emergent order, we're definitely treating social systems as complex systems. And I mean that in a technical sense, that in, within complexity science, the idea of complex systems means that, um, you, it, that they're non-deterministic. You can't tell what the outcome's gonna be of the interactions among the individuals in the system. And so social systems themselves are inherently complex because they're very open-ended 
And what's going on is you have different individuals who are interacting within, you know, we'll call them agents. Each of them has their own private knowledge about their preferences, their life projects. Um, we'll talk more about that tomorrow. And then they have an environment, a context in which they are interacting. Uh, and th these individuals, these agents interact with each other given a set of rules. And um, what, what that means is that uh, a complex system means that you have individuals interacting in an environment given a set of rules and they aren't necessarily gonna get to the exact same outcome every single time, because it's non-deterministic, but they're gonna get to different outcomes. And so one, one thing that, that complexity scientists do to, to study complex systems is they'll do what's called agent-based modeling. So you set up this agent-based model where you basically do what I've just described here uh, on a computer and you run it, and you run it, and you run it, and you run it like thousands of times. And what are you looking for? You're looking for patterns, right? So are there particular types of outcomes that generally tend to occur more than others? Um, another context that, that you can use to analyze this is experimental economics, right? So where you get real live humans, uh, usually undergrads um, playing for beer money, and uh, then you know, have them test how these institutions work in this environment given the kind of interactions that they induce. And, uh, and if they are not inducing mutually good, mutually beneficial uh, outcomes, then you change the rules and see what happens, that kind of stuff. So this is, this is some of the ways that economists can test some of these emergent order concepts. Um, uh, and one of the important things, especially when we think about the economics and we think about exchange and we think about markets as complex systems, is the idea that there are feedback effects, right? And so, so you can think about um, the fact that if you're in a market and you have um, you know, excess demand, so there's a concert and it's really popular and um, the, tickets, the, the tickets are at a listed price, but they sold out instantly, and so there's excess demand, and so you go to StubHub and the tickets are ridiculously expensive, right? So you've got these high prices. Part of what, if, if you can bid down, i.e. maybe issue more tickets for the concert, then that encourage, because the suppliers have an incentive to do that if the prices are higher, if that, in, that in, moves prices down towards a price that would clear that market, that's an example of a feedback effect. Right? Um, and, and so that's, that's something that, that is a very important feature of markets as complex systems is this idea of feedback effects. Um, the other thing that is, and I mentioned this already, so I'll just, just reiterate it, um, that the idea is that you can have very predictable processes, i.e. predictable rules in which agents are interacting with each other, but they're generating unpredictable outcomes, right? That's the defining hallmark feature of a complex system. Uh, I have a very selective history of this concept of emergent order. Um, and I'm going to start uh, in China with, uh, sorry, my Chinese pronunciation is very bad. So, Zhuangzi, 
good order results spontaneously when things are let alone. This is a really good articulation of the concept of spontaneous order. Uh, another good one that, that is in the, um, the work of um, 18th century, I'm going to call him uh, provocateur and social theorist Bernard de Mandeville. Um, he, in the Fable of the Bees, he famously said, all of these things that we think are vices, they actually are virtues because of the things that they induce, the kind of outcomes that they, you know, things that we think are public vices are actually private virtues, or private virtues, public, pri private vices, public virtues. There it is. There, I got it that time. Things that are private vices end up being public virtues. Um, and, uh, and, and just, I'm, I'm going to have an advertisement. The, the BBC has a really great radio show on Radio 4 called In Our Time, and it's a kind of intellectual history, scientific history, and so on. And it says a podcast. And their podcast this week that just dropped yesterday is about Fable of the Bees. So um, go check it out. Uh, I haven't listened to it yet, but I was so excited that <laughs> my poor husband, I sent him a text at 5 o'clock this morning when I was at the hotel going, Fable of the Bees! But, um, the other main history, and you can tell this by the number of times I've referred to Adam Smith already, is that the Scottish Enlightenment is a, is a um, rich, rich petri dish for working through and developing these ideas of uh, spontaneous order. And as I also mentioned Hayek, the thread then goes, I think, from Scottish Enlightenment to Austrian economics. And uh, so that's my very selective history of the concept. And then the, the modern complexity science. And, and this is an interesting intersection because you know, Hayek had an essay, a 1967 essay called Theory of Complex Phenomena. And he talked about complexity a lot in his Nobel address. Uh, complexity science today is, um, is very computational and mathematical as well. Lots of nonlinear dynamics, um, the math of that coming from kind of fluid dynamics in physics. Uh, so there's a lot of different ways of trying to think about and tackle this question of, um, of emergent order. Um, my preferred articulation of it is from Adam Ferguson, a Scottish Enlightenment theorist and a compatriot of David Hume and Adam Smith, who in his essay on the history of civil society says, every step and every movement of the multitude, even in what are termed enlightened ages, are made with equal blindness to the future, i.e., we don't know what's coming in the future. Prediction's really hard, especially about the future. Um, so I've, I ha should put Yogi Berra in there as one of my <laughs> theorists, because he's, he's great on these things. Um, and nations stumble upon establishments which are indeed the result of human action, but not the execution of any human design. And if you want a concise definition of the concept of spontaneous order, that's it. That distinction between human action and human design. Right? Design is basically saying we intended for this outcome to happen. Human action is saying we interacted and this outcome emerged out of our interactions, right? And so that distinction is the, is the defining distinction here. Um, Adam Smith, of course, complexity theorist. This is the famous passage from The Wealth of Nations where he is the, which is the only 
passage in The Wealth of Nations where he uses the phrase invisible hand, but the invisible hand concept uh, is, is, is a, a spontaneous order concept. The idea that individuals in pursuing their own interests can bring about an outcome that they didn't intend, but that actually generates benefits for others. Um, and then, of course, <laughs> being a little, a little snarky at the end there, I have never known much good done by those who have affected to trade for the public good. Uh, and you know, so he's basically saying, you know, and and you know, Smith was very much his project was very much an institutional project. If insti if the institutions of society enable these agents to interact uh, in ways that align their private interests with good outcomes for other people as well, you know, that's that's a good set of institutions. So again channeling Jeff's consequentialism. Uh, so these defining features of complex systems, again, just to, to be specific about them, we have individual agents who have self-interest. They also have private knowledge. They are the only ones who know anything about their own preferences or life projects. Agents interact. There are rules governing these interactions. And at a system level, that generates outcomes that you can't predict in advance. They're non-deterministic. For example, In that, I think I can flip back without it. Yeah, what's going on here? What's this phenomenon called? This is swarming. Yeah, this is birds swarming, and right, these are birds, right? Not not animals that we think have any higher consciousness to be able to coordinate with each other and say, okay. All right, Bill, you go over there, and Mary, you're going there, and John's going to tell us when to go here, right? It's not happening. They're all coordinating based on a simple set of rules, which is if you see two or more birds flying in that direction, join them, right? And that is a great example of, and a very natural, you know, there are, I, I mentioned ants and um, Ant colonies, um, there are tons and tons and tons of natural phenomena that exhibit this, these, this, these emergent order characteristics. Um, and, uh, and bird swarming is a really good example of just you know, simple rules, but yet they form an order. And it's an order that ultimately is beneficial for them because they'll swarm, if they, they swarm, they're like more likely to go in directions where they find more to eat. Obviously, geese flying north and south with the seasons is another example of this. Um, and so the other thing that, that I really, uh, I think it's underappreciated when we think about spontaneous order is this idea that um, these feedback effects allow for systems to be self-correcting. Right? And, and that's one of, the th one of the things that I think is the most powerful, it's one of the most potent insights that we get from economics, 
is the idea that if you have a market that's out of equilibrium, so you have this you know, excess demand because prices are too low, um, that, that um, you know, the desire, the ability of suppliers to increase their quantity and the desire of, of consumers to, to buy the, the good, that that's going to bid prices um, uh, up, right? Excess demand, prices too low, bid prices up. Yes, <laughs> to make sure. Um, and that is a mechanism for self-correction. Right? And that's the idea that that negative feedback loop, that negative feedback effect, is a mechanism for self-correction. And it works the other way, too. If you have excess supply, then that, you, the dynamics there between buyers and sellers bid prices down. Um, and so that's the idea of um, having not just a complex system, but a complex adaptive system. Complex adaptive systems take the feedback that they're getting as agents interact and the agents take that result, and then they change their behavior. Right? Um, and I have, another, I have another video example of this, but, um, but I have a question I want to ask you first. Uh, and how many of you have ever watched the Tour de France? Oh, good. I got enough cycling fans here. Yes. All right, so when they're going through towns, Right? You know, so they've got the big peloton, and it's usually about you know, seven or eight people wide, and they've got a big peloton going through town. What is one of the things that they always encounter in those bloody little French towns that they have to negotiate around? Yeah, Roundabouts. Roundabouts. Yes, the traffic furniture. I love it. The, the Britishisms that just creep in here, all of this traffic furniture. Um, and, but yeah, roundabouts, right? And so what is it that's beautiful about watching a group of 90 cyclists? And I said, I'm, I'm a cyclist, so you know, I, get to, I get to do this, not in the Tour de France, but, <laughs> um, but it's one of my favorite things to do when I'm out in a group ride, because we have some, some uh, roundabouts in northern Illinois, and you just, you approach the roundabout, and the peloton splits. And then they come back together, and it's just beautiful, and it just flows, right? And, and so you know that each of those individual riders is one of these agents, and that they have formed this pattern of riding together because it's mutually beneficial. It helps them save energy, all this stuff. But then they encounter this change. Ooh, we got this big piece of concrete in a circle in front of us. Okay, we need to go around that. And so then they adapt to that and then come back. It doesn't always work out that well. Womani Colombia. So Colombian riders in that in that crash, right? So, so that illustrates this idea of going around a peloton and, and the, the fact that you know, they're adapting to their conditions and they're adapting to the environment and the rules under which they're operating. And then something unexpected happens and a rider crashes. And so then what do you see everyone else do? They all, because they want to stay upright and keep their position to you know, ultimately help them do well in the race, they all do what they can to avoid the crash. Right? So it's a nice illustration, I think. 
um, of the idea of adaptation and feedback effects and how feedback effects cause agents to change their behavior. But that order that emerges, you know, it's not like, it's not like the, the race official comes out at the beginning of the day and says, okay, you guys, you're going to want to ride like six wide and keep about this far between each of you. And, you know, the, the idea of how to ride in a way that's, that's beneficial to everyone emerged over the, you know, 100 and... 110 years that they've been doing these organized uh, races. Um, so, so what does that mean for us? If we're going to be a little more specific, I want to be a little more specific and tie this into economics. Um, the uh, place that I would start is, again, with a reading recommendation, which is Richard Epstein's book, Simple Rules for a Complex World. And so I think that's one of the profound insights to come out of thinking about emergent order and the idea that we, as individuals, we interact in social systems given an environment that can be changing and given a set of rules that generally don't change. And certainly as someone who studies regulation, I'm like, they sure don't change the way I want them to or at the speed I would like them to. Um, and so, so one of the insights that we get from thinking about emergent order is if you have simple rules, that enables the participants to figure out what types of interactions are mutually beneficial and to take whatever outcomes they're, they're seeing and, oh, maybe we don't like those outcomes, maybe we should change our behavior. And if that's still not helping, then maybe you go back and, and change the rules. Um, which gets us into that complicated, the complicated world of politics. Um, and on that note, I would argue actually that rule systems themselves are emergent phenomena. And in particular, if you think about the English common law and the way the English common law developed over centuries, that it started with, um, you know, in, in sort of in a feudal system where you have uh, localities and kind of local um, you know, lords of the manor who essentially become local officials because people would appeal to them to help adjudicate disputes. And so you have this very, very, very decentralized, distributed, different people in different parts of the country are looking to the, the local landowners to adjudicate disputes. And you see that pattern happening in different places around the country. And those guys all knew each other and talked to each other occasionally. And, you know, you know, how now, good Sir Knight, how art thou today? Let's, you know, what's what's going on in your domain? Oh my farmers are all complaining about pigs and da da da. da. And so then they would start to share notes and and basically um, you know, compare notes about how did you solve that problem? How did you solve that problem? And so they developed this network of knowledge. And um, then there, this, uh, this is a very, very potted history of the English common law, by the way. <laughs> Fast forward. Um, so if any of you are lawyers, I apologize. Uh, the, you know, you, you, you then get things emerge like there are, there are localities that aren't very well served by, uh, you know, local authorities who can adjudicate disputes. Um, so you have, you know, traveling 
um, traveling justices, essentially, who will, and this, this becomes the court de pied poudre, the, the I don't know, justices who travel is called pie powder because they all have dusty feet because they're kind of walking from town to town. Um, there's the king's court, which is a different set of, of laws that are used to adjudicate particular disputes, maybe among, among the, the landowners. And so you have different rules being developed over time at these different levels. And over centuries, that accretes into and gets codified as English common law. And it's a, it's a beautiful illustration of the extent to which rules are themselves emergent phenomena. And, um, uh, and, and I think we can think of, of other examples of this. Another person who, who's done fantastic work on this was um, Eleanor Ostrom and, and her study of uh, community self-governance when there's common pool resources. So the idea that, uh, for example, in um, villages in Vietnam where they grow rice and they have shared irrigation system, how do the villagers themselves figure out who's going to use how much water and when? And uh, they come up with these shared this, these rules that they all agree to. Um, and some of them are informed by custom. Some of them are informed by what worked for the village down the road. Uh, so it's, again, this kind of shared knowledge network that gives them this community self-governance, which is a very bottom-up way of coming up with rules to help them adjudicate their disputes and, and figure out how to manage their use of common pool resources. And in both of these cases, the English common law and um, common pool resources, one of, the, one of the key features here is that the bottom-up nature of it harnesses the fact that um, these different communities and different people in these communities have local knowledge. And so if you had more of a kind of Hobbesian world where the third party comes in and says, OK, here's how you all are going to use your water. Um, that person might not have the best knowledge of what some of the issues are and, and some of the constraints are in that village. And so both of these approaches and, and sort of bottom-up emergent phenomena in particular do a better job of taking advantage of local knowledge. Which gets me to one of my favorite points about markets, because most people don't think about markets this way, especially in what I do, because I work in electricity. And so I work with a lot of engineers. And so when engineers think about markets, they think about equations, <laughs> and um, as do most economists. But, um, but, but reminding them that the equations represent the underlying concept that markets are decentralized processes of experimentation, social learning, and error correction to capture the idea that markets are complex phenomena with feedback effects that enable us to generate new knowledge that we can then adapt to uh, over time. Um, planning. I, I suspect that um, the word planning is not very well received in this crowd. Am I right? <laughs> um, Planning, you know, the, the, the idea of planning, I think, is very, um, you know, emergent order. The idea with emergent order is, as Ferguson says, because it's hum through human action and not human design, it's an outcome that nobody particularly planned for that specific outcome. But uh, you can, um, I think it's certainly true that 
that the different participants in social systems plan for certain things. Right, so like business owners plan for their production processes over the next year. Households plan for their savings or the repairs they're going to do to the house. Or, you know, but the, the idea is that planning occurs, but it occurs at a much more decentralized level. And if those individuals who are doing their own planning for whatever it is their life projects are interact with, in the simple rules, um, that they can, if, if it's a, a quote-unquote good in the consequential sense set of rules, that they could generate um, outcomes that align the personal uh, benefits with more broad uh, benefits for others in their society. Um, so I think this is, my, this is my sort of summary list of the concepts that uh, I think come out of thinking about emergent order. Uh, what's, what's going on in, in the idea of having a social system that allows for order to emerge is the, a process of decentralized coordination. So rather than top-down planning or control, the focus is on decentralized coordination to get that harmony that Adam Smith was talking about. Uh, and that simple rules mean that, that you can have what I think of as a beneficial complexity in a social system and, uh, and get good outcomes. Um, I think that's my last point. I've got uh, a ton of readings, um, and I don't remember. I hope you're going to have the slides afterwards. But if not, um, you should feel free to email me, and I will um, you know, give you this whole long list of stuff to read. Uh, most of these are things I read, I mentioned. The Stephen Johnson book, Emergence, is a nice kind of layperson-friendly way to talk about complexity science. Um, he's also, he's a, he's a science journalist, and he also recently wrote a book and did a PBS series called How We Got to Now. So if you're a, a fan of, of economic history or history of technology, um, I would recommend that as well. But that's that, that's, um, uh, here it is, Stephen Johnson. Um, Steve Strogatz is a mathematician at Cornell, and his book Sync is very much about like bird flocking and um, fireflies, how the process by which they coordinate when their lights go and um, things like that. So if you're interested in natural systems that have these phenomena, that's a good book. Um, Smith and Hayek and Ostrom, everyone should read all of those. Um, there's a really interesting book came out about a decade ago, Eric Beinhacker, who I think is a may still be a director at McKinsey, but he has written what's essentially a theory of economic growth that's based on these um, complexity science principles and the idea of how you structure rules in a way that enable uh, economic growth. Um, I can't say enough positive things about Epstein's Simple Rules for a Complex World. Definitely a great thing to read. If you're interested in cities, because that's the other, the other area that these things tend to show up is in the evolution of urban, uh, of cities and urban systems, um, Jane Jacobs, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, she takes a very, very spontaneous order approach to urban, um, the evolution of, of cities and urban areas. 
And, and it's very much in this sense of harmony. Different people have these different life projects. Cities are ways that we can enable people to live harmoniously and have diverse people pursuing their life projects and get the benefits of interacting. Um, and and it's, it's an absolute classic. And then uh, uh, one of the best current uh, urban economists, Ed Glazer, has a similar argument in Triumph of the City. And, uh, and again, harnesses a lot of these spontaneous order type arguments. All right, so there's your reading list. Go. Cool. Um, so I will stop there and ask for questions. And that this is one reason why I like Smith's invocation of harmony, because harmony implies, right? Because if, if, if the orchestra were uniform, everyone would be playing a violin, and that would not be beautiful music. Sorry, violinists, but not be beautiful music, right? And so the idea of harmony is that we harness our diversity, and we're each doing different things. And um, you know, so that's one part of it. But the, the part that's hard, Tom, I think, in your point is the, you know, the appearance of chaos and those who are unsettled by the appearance of chaos and want to do something, right? To, to turn it into something that matches up with their concept of order. I think that's really hard. And so that's the, you know, the, the kind of communication. You know, and we talk about like planned order and unplanned order. Um, and I think it's, it, it, I'm going to say the same thing that Jeff said that's probably unsatisfying before. But I think changing people's mental maps happens one person at a time. And so it's very much the, you know, so I do, I do a lot of work with um, state public utility regulators. And because I work on, I work on digital and distributed, uh, di distributed energy resource technologies and, and, and how public utility regulation interacts with technological change. 
And um, you know, they have a very well-defined concept of order that involves you know, following the, you know, our, our mission comes from the legislature, and so we have to follow statute, and we implement these laws for you know, setting the rates that customers pay, and da-da, 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 da-da. And you know, I've been working with them for 15 years, and it's very much a kind of one person at a time talking to them and giving them presentations or hosting workshops for them. And that's the hard work. That's the hard work of, of liberty. Hi. Um, so uh, as someone who is uh, fairly entrenched in the idea of spontaneous order and, and kind of thinking about the context, um, I, I, I see, and please excuse if I'm yeah, no, go. mixing things up, um, I, I see a little bit of a tension in kind of the, the traditional libertarian um, uh, thought and some, some things that you might see in like the Austrian school uh-huh. About spontaneous order. So maybe for an example, um, you hear a lot in libertarian thought, which which obviously we're a lot very sympathetic with, um, that you you don't need things like, um, uh, for example, the gentleman we talked about earlier, uh, things that regulate against um, discrimination because yeah. you would leave that to um, you know to, to that's one of those feedback effects, right? right. But, but racism is a thing that is a spontaneous order, right? For example, yeah. no, there was no one who said let's be this, this or that, this or yeah. that. Um, how do you um, how do you think? And then that's just one example. Um, it's how a good you, example. How do you think about uh, spontaneous orders that are not healthy, uh, and how and thinking about how to create institutions and and fit that into a smaller government or a libertarian, you know, framework. Excellent. There's a there's a uh, I think it's I don't remember if it's a journal article or a book by Virgil Storr. It's S T O R R called Bad Spontaneous Orders. And he's studying, um, he's originally from the Bahamas, and so he's studying a particular uh, case of, you know, kind of letting emergent order happen in the Bahamas, and it went just epically wrong. And so there are things like that. And so I think that's the, the being honest about the fact that there are bad spontaneous orders. And then the question is, well, and, and part of the tension, part of the tension comes with, I think, within the broader libertarian, classical liberal umbrella of uh, you know, how we think about rules, right? And so like Tom was saying, you know, we, have, we have all sorts of broader tension with others about how we think about order, but I think within the kind of classical liberal umbrella, we have tensions with how we think about rules. And so you can go from kind of the anarcho-capitalist, you know, total voluntarist, you know, we're going to voluntarily come together and come up with the rules uh, to a more kind of standardly classical liberal rule of law. One of the appropriate functions of government is establishing those rules, but they should be simple rules that enable us to interact. Um, yeah, is that, am yeah, I, is that your question? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the question. Yeah. Yes. That, that someone like a Smith might have seen um, was necessary then that might be necessary now. And, and kind of having that framework adapt to, to be something that um, maybe, maybe should be considered more. I, I, I agree. I agree. And thinking about how rules adapt is, and the processes by which they adapt, because in reality, right, it's this, 
it's this interplay of emergence and design, right? And, and that's the reality that we inhabit. And the even, you know, even Ostrom's Vietnamese farmers who are figuring out how to manage their irrigation system and its community self-governance bottom up, they're, it's, it's emergent in the sense that they look at the environment that they are in and they use their local knowledge, but they still go through a design process, right? They have a town meeting and they say, okay, we have to deal with this. What are the rules we're gonna come up with, right? So it's that combination of emergence and design. And I think different folks under the classical liberal umbrella are less comfortable with the more constructivist design aspect of that. Mm -hmm. You actually have a term there. What you're actually describing are things that, given uh, appropriate rules and appropriate feedback, uh, get, get stronger. Yeah, exactly. And that's um, the reason I think resilience just pops out to me is because it's the it's the current policy. One of the current policy issues in electricity is as we get more distributed um, distributed energy resources, you know, rooftop solar, electric vehicles, and so on. The concern of the kind of control system engineers is: Are these things going to bring down the system, or like you know, hurricanes or terrorism? You know, how do we make how do we make sure that the system is able to return quickly to some operational state? And so that, that concept of resilience is, is relatively new in electricity, because the concept of electricity is all about reliability, right? I flip the switch and the light goes on every single minute. Um, but anti-fragile is, that I, would, I would add that to the list for exactly the reasons you said. And this is, this is great because it, um, uh, I, I always like to encourage people not to think in terms of, you know, markets are perfect. And so, so my initial, when I get into conversations like that, my initial response is, of course markets aren't perfect, right? They are institutions that emerge out of human experience and nothing that, Nothing in, in our world, whether it emerges out of human experience or some other form of natural experience, because that's a natural experience, none of that is going to be perfect. And so the, the real, and it's hard work, but the real thing to do is to compare the outcomes that we would get with uh, the, the imperfect market compared to the outcome that we would get with imperfect regulation. 
because they're both imperfect. And so that's where you have to do the what's called comparative institutional analysis. And that's hard. But, and, it's, and it's hard to make it persuasive, right? Because you're making a counterfactual argument. But you know, then you just have to do the hard work of get, finding data, making your assumptions, being really transparent about what you're doing. Um, that's uh, <laughs> that's an interest. I, I, I have never really thought about how I got interested in this. I'm just like it's just always been there. Um, you know, I was one of those kids who the the Milton Friedman free to choose PBS videos and were on TV and, and were videos when I was in high school. And so that was what my econ teacher in high school, they just, you know, she just sat us down. I was like, here, watch this. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is great. Um, and, um, and just, you know, my parents were both very economisty. Well, my mom actually worked as an economist uh, for an electric utility, <laughs> setting rates. <laughs> but, um, but we're both very kind of, you know, market-oriented, so I think I just, um, and uh, probably Reed and Hayek in college was probably what, what really kicked it up in my consciousness was, was that. Um, how, do we, how do we work with our fellow economists to get them to think more about spontaneous order? I think that the challenge is that um, methodologically, and, and Professor McCloskey is the, is the source on this, so I won't steal her thunder, but uh, methodologically, economists like to work with simplified models that are very closed systems, and that has a lot of value. I would not want to. I would not want to throw out that baby, but um, but I think if we do that to the exclusion of other methodologies and other approaches, that we are limiting our ability to understand human phenomena, and. Uh, and so if I, if I have like a super technocratic colleague, then usually like the gateway entry is, is some of this um, more technical kind of complexity science stuff. And, um, and then I'll maybe introduce some kind of economic history to, and, and so in part it's, it's the, you know, I'm not rejecting your models and I'm not telling you that your research is, is useless, but I'm saying that you should think more broadly about if you just use that methodology, there are all these other aspects of human phenomena that you can't fully discuss. Um, and so it's, it's more of the, as you know, Emily Chamley Wright, who's the president of the Institute for Humane Studies, says, it's an invitation to a conversation. That's how I approach it. Thanks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Welcome, welcome to my world. <laughs> uh, I, I really like thinking about spontaneous order because I sense of 
sociology and political sciences. Mm. The idea that like these social institutions and structures come out organically, I think, is one that I find like rather appeasing. Mm -hmm. um, so I have like two questions. Uh, one, are the ways we currently organize in society unnatural? Have we tried to like overextend the communities that we even that we're a part of? And the second one, thinking about this idea of like consent over government and we create the government, we create the rules and yeah. that we govern ourselves. Can top-down approaches be justified if we all agree yeah. that we need a dictator? Oof. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, natural. So, see, natural. I. Um, I recently have been reading some of the philosopher Daniel Dennett, who is very down on the concept of natural, just in general. And so he's always asking these questions like, why do we even care if something's natural? Um, so that's going to color a little bit of my kind of response, which is, does it, does it really, what does it even mean for our systems to be natural? I mean, and I invoke nature a lot here. Right, because of you know biological systems, ecosystems, um, but I think that that your question opens up a broader question of what does it even mean for something to be natural? And I know that that in and actually your you, this comes out of sociology, so you know it's way better than I do. But that there's uh, is it like Berland or someone? There's someone who has done research on essentially the 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 si group sizes that tend to function well, and it's like 60 uh, or something. Right. Yeah, but that that the kind of group size the the group size sweet spot um, for social systems is like 60 or 70, and once you get beyond that, then things start to fracture. Um, and so uh, that, but but. Uh, I, I also say this to someone who studies technology. One of the things about technology is that it changes what we think constitutes communities, right? And so, um, you know, that change means that you can have different types of communities and different levels of interaction that aren't necessarily spatially defined and maybe have larger sizes. Like, so I was just, for example, I was looking at my LinkedIn account the other day, and I was I never use LinkedIn, but, and I was just stunned at the number of people I'm connected with on LinkedIn. So I'm like, how did that happen? And it's way beyond this, you know. So, um, so I think your, your question points out that it's a more complicated, you know, this is a more complicated question that, you know, even what we mean by social system or community is, has a lot more going on. Um, we the governed, consent of the governed, what if we all consent to a dictatorship? This sounds like dystopian science fiction, right? Yeah. Um, and can we, can we agree, uh, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put, um, I'm gonna put the uh, Odysseus, Ulysses kind of slant on that, you know, can we tie ourselves to the mast in some way to prevent us from all agreeing to have a dictator, right? I mean, and that's one way that, especially like my, my friend and co-author, Mike Munger, is one way that Mike look, thinks about politics is, is that idea of, of you know, coming up with some ways that we essentially tie ourselves to the mast and agree to a set of, of rules about rules, right? The constitutional framework that might keep us from going down that road to tyranny. 
not a satisfactory answer, I'm afraid. I but think it's going to be a bigger question. It's a bigger question, yeah. Uh, Hi. Uh, I have kind of two questions because, first, there seems to be some kind of institutions that allow spontaneous soldiers to develop well and not develop badly, like yeah. the example from the hands. Uh, and the second is, uh, so I want to ask you, what, what do you think these institutions are? And secondly, yeah. I think it was Frederick Bastiat in the law, the one who said, when a law goes against our moral compass, we have to choose between following our moral compass or following the law. Yep. What happened when our society believed that these institutions that allow the, the, the spontaneous order to develop well, think are against our moral compass. In some mm -hmm. societies, we believe that, for example, free market economies, private property are bad. bad. So what do we do when our society is against what allows people to grow and find wealth? That's a hard question. Yeah. That's a really hard question. It was because my until you said that, my answer was going to be, um, you know, if and, and this is again a kind of limited government type answer that if we if we can focus on a, an institutional framework that reflects the moral compass of a lot of you know I I wouldn't say unanimity because unanimity is hard but. You know, that broadly reflects the things in our moral compass that most of us can agree on. You know, but, but then you, know, you, you threw the curveball of and what, if, what if we all, you know, part of our moral compass says free markets are bad. Um, I think that's a really hard question. I don't have a good answer. But, and I think it's, and, and the reason I don't have a good answer is that this gets out of economics and into politics, right? And, and the, you know, the idea that, um, but, but I guess what I would think, the way I think about it is that politics should be an act, a process by which we come to agreement about doing things that are better done collectively and either can't be done or are done very poorly if individuals try to do them separately. And of course, the, 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 this brings in, and the, I, I'm going to invoke the other Ostrom, Vincent Ostrom here. This is the polycentricity, right? That, that what that actually means is going to be different at different levels of interaction. Right, so like Ostrom and or Eleanor Ostrom and her Vietnamese rice farmers, that's just within a village, and then you can go up and have different types of interactions, up to the global ones that involve things like greenhouse gases. It's hard. organize a society 
how to create wealth, how to avoid poverty. There's a model uh, fixing yep. that we societies do not avoid. Yeah. And what happens when that hits moral compass, it's against what it works. And, and I'll make it even more complicated, some aspects of our moral compass change over time, right? So that makes it even harder. No, I don't have a good answer for you, but I think you framed the question well. And this is, this is a question I would like to, I, you know, have more philosophers and political scientists weigh in on. Yeah. That's pretty good. I'm a quarter Swedish, so okay, well, that's pretty well, that's, good. <laughs> we wrote a book on strategies for action, team building, teams, and strategy, certainly from a libertarian point of view. Yeah. Um, and it has obviously evolved in talking about humans. The title was Swarming. Swarming. Yes. Yep. It's a very, and I, I spent an hour on Skype with him at a meeting uh, as he was Interesting. talking about how you organize people to move forward. And it really, humans, Swarm. Yeah. I mean, we join, we join into a group that's already done, and the group gets bigger and bigger. So yep. it's very applicable, even yeah. though we have a higher level of potential of thinking about things than the birds. Okay. Yeah. But we do do a lot of things to join a group. Yep. That's where an action's happening. And not necessarily, you know, consciously going through and I've done all my research and there are 12 different groups and I'm going to join this one. It's just kind of the, oh, hey, those folks are doing something cool. I'm going to go see what's going on. Oh, hey, this is pretty cool. I think I'm going to go with you. Yeah. That's the way, that's the way a lot of the world works. Absolutely. Right, I'll, yeah, I'll send them all to Mackenzie. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I have an issue with societies being pushed into the city. I know that's the big focus of government right now. I, I will tell you, having to drive into LA at night, several LAX several times, is a nonsense of trying to get it. Then trying to get through the Boston traffic, it seems like you know cities reach a certain size or order. And I mean, I know there's been studies with mice in terms of the utopian societies that they can only reach a certain level before. 
generation flavor. Is there, you talk about the, there's something up here about cities and how cities get structured. Is there something about the degradation of cities that then tip? What's the tipping? Is there, is yeah. there something we can read on the tipping point? Yeah. Where it falls down? Well, and I think um, Jane Jacobs has, has um, essentially talks about those kind of tipping points. Uh, and I should say I'm not an expert in this particular field, but this is just literature that I, I think is a good representation of it. Um, and in particular, it's, it's again this mixture of emergence and planning. And in particular, uh, Jacobs uh, lived, I think, in Greenwich Village and uh, in the 50s and 60s. Um, although she's Canadian, I think. Um, and she was one of the community activists who opposed the top-down urban planning that Robert Moses was introducing in New York that, you know, like building big highway overpasses and um, high-rise public housing, you know, tearing down neighborhoods to build highways and, and high-rise public housing. And I mean, I lived in Chicago now for 22 years, so we had the same thing. <laughs> and, and so I think there it's that, you know, if you think about the degradation, one argument is the zone, kind of zoning, that, the, the kind of the, the planner, the pl I'll call it the planner's hubris. Right? So Robert Moses comes in and he's like, all right, we've got all this congestion. I know what we need. We need more highways and overpasses. And yeah, so we're going to mow down that part of Greenwich Village. But yeah, they'll move. It'll be fine. You're like, these people have lives. You know, they have their own principles of motion. They have their own relationships. And, and it's just, you know, he was man of system. He just was like, Poof. And so she was part of the, the kind of pro the protests and the uprising against that and successfully managed to, um, to nix the, the highway project in particular that, that was going to like mow through Greenwich Village. Um, but the other aspect of this, if we take it to modern day LA or San Francisco, or is um, you know, again, the planning thing with zoning and, and, and there's two parts of it, right? There's the kind of city planners who have the kind of urbanism, the utopian urbanism vision of what cities should be like and that they should all have light rail and da 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 da. And then at the same time, you have folks who are already property owners and would like to encase their neighborhood in amber and have it not change ever. And so that's why no one is allowed to build anything anywhere that anyone could live in. <laughs> and that's why, I, it's one of the reasons why you know, San Francisco is, in my opinion, a mess right now, is precisely this. And so is that, that's that, that, the degradation yeah, that type. Yeah, that is, and that's all, I agree with everything you said. But even when we put half a billion into LAX, we still only have two roads into LAX. Yep. Well, and this is just, you know, the, the planner's hubris, right? The planner thinks that the planner knows where the roads are supposed to go, and, and the roads don't, and the light rail. And the light rail doesn't necessarily go where the people actually want to go, right? So. Exactly true. <laughs> I just wondered, in terms of your emphasis on uh, Yep. 
Okay, so which, which Pareto, because th there are two Pareto principles that live in my mind. One is Pareto efficiency, and the other is the 80-20 rule. Yeah, the 80-20. The 80-20 rule, okay, good. Um, because, and, and I'm really glad that you asked it that way, because the 80-20 rule and, and Pareto's, Pareto's math behind it is one of the foundational mathematical works of complexity science, right? And so, so that's where all of the, like if you see reference to the idea of a power law, Right, it's from that Pareto kind of 80-20. You know, power law means something has a Pareto distribution. Um, I'm not sure there's a tension. I'm, I, you know, and I don't know if you want to stand up again or you just say it and I'll repeat it. What, you know, what, what's the tension that you see? Right. What the political tension against? Yeah. The yeah the the and again I'm not expert in this in this area but the um, you know the the inequality I think a lot of a lot of the concerns about inequality would benefit by a, a kind of deeper inquiry into. The process, you know, over over people's lifetimes, you know, what what does the life cycle income look like for different people, and you know, going, um, what do what do incomes look like, and do are people, you know, is the as people cycle in and out of different income levels, does that change, how does that change the distribution? Um, but I think what you're really asking now that I've thought about it is this is more like a 1% question, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and I think, And the, the outcomes will, will lead to, you know, and, and this is, I mean, if, if, we're, if we're being philosophers about it, right, these are different notions of justice, right? And, and so, you know, we can have rules that everyone agrees are just, but they can yield outcomes that we might find unattractive. And that, uh, that is tension, I agree. Um, and uh, I don't feel expert enough to say anything beyond that. Because then it would just be me and my opinion, and you, you know, don't need, you don't need my opinion. Cool. Are we on good time? Speaking of justice, it's 11.59 and 58 seconds. Good. So thank you for your excellent questions.